Our sermon text this morning is found on page 872 of your Pew Bible. Luke chapter 12, verses, verse 54, and I'll read uh, through to chapter 13, verse 9. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, He, that is Jesus, also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it rise up? Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. always with expectation that we come to hear from your word because we know that you are God who speaks. You do not remain silent, and you've spoken most clearly and most emphatically and most truly through your word. And I, Mike Kubinek, am nothing but just a faithful steward, hopefully. So I pray that people will forget me instead we'll encounter Jesus. Ask this in his holy name. Amen. You've probably heard the phrase being on the wrong side of history. 
Usually it's not a compliment. It's not like, good job, man, you're on the wrong side of history. It's usually an insult. When I was in high school, I was in a debate argument with a friend who was not a Christian, and he accused me of being on the wrong side of history. I don't remember what we were arguing about, some Christian teaching he didn't like. And he said, you know, in 50 years, the history textbooks are not going to look kindly on you. You're on the wrong side of history. And what's ironic about that phrase, especially when it's used by my friend, who is not a Christian, he was kind of just a, I don't know, agnostic, secular, humanist, I don't even know how he described himself. What's ironic is that he's assuming certain Christian beliefs about time and making that accusation. Because the Judeo-Christian understanding of time is very different than what we find in other cultures. It's very different than what existed throughout history. So you think of karma and reincarnation, which is more of an Eastern understanding of time. You know, you, you live your life, and depending on how you live, you die, and then you're reincarnated, and you do it all over again. And, it, and for most of us, it's just going to be eternity. And then occasionally, someone may escape reincarnation and achieve nirvana, but that's really just a state of non-existence, so it's still not a kind of a linear understanding of time, that time is moving somewhere. And similarly, the, a lot of the ancient cultures, from what we can tell from documents that remain, they also believed in kind of a cyclical understanding of time. Time is just eternal. The same thing happens. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the seasons go. It's not moving anywhere. And so to say you're on the wrong side of history is assuming that history is moving somewhere and that there can be a wrong side versus just one side. Plus, when you don't believe in God, a kind of transcendent view to history, there really is no history in the singular. There's just histories. We all have our individual histories, and they may intertwine with others, but there's no coherent sense to it. So there's an irony to my friend accusing me of being on the wrong side of history, when for him there really wasn't a history to be on the wrong side of. There were just many histories. But even more ironic is that Jesus, in our text this morning, is calling out the Jewish leaders because, in fact, they were on the wrong side of history, but on the wrong side of God's history, God's story of salvation. Because the Jewish leaders, and, and then after them, much of the Jewish nation— they failed to understand it in Jesus. It wasn't just a prophetic teacher. It wasn't just a rabbi. It wasn't just a miracle worker. But that in Jesus, time was changing. Time was turning a corner. Everything had been leading up to him, and now we're entering a new chapter in this history of God's story of salvation. And the, and the, and the Jewish leaders failed to understand that. So that's going to be kind of the theme of, of, how they under, of how they failed to understand the time that was happening and, and all that. The outline for this morning is going to be really basic. First point is going to be understanding the times. Second point is going to be responding to the times. All looking at that basic idea that the coming of Jesus was a turning point in the history of humanity, a turning point in the history of God's story. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and look at verses 54 to 56 in chapter 12. I'm going to read that for us quick. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Well, this is a pretty simple illustration. If you lived in Israel and you saw clouds in the west, there would have been moisture coming up from the Mediterranean Sea because that's what's to the west, and so you knew that's, that's rain coming. Or if there was a wind from the south, that's coming from the Sinai Desert, and so that's going to be bringing heat. And so you could see these things, and you didn't have to be a meteorologist or a weatherman. You knew what was coming. And you can think of it this way. You know, think of Kentucky in the middle of July in a hot, muggy summer afternoon, and all of a sudden the temperature drops 15 degrees, and there's a cold breeze, and you see clouds coming. You don't have to be a meteorologist to know there's a thunderstorm coming. 
we read what's happening by the signs. What Jesus tells, the, the, again, the religious leaders and, 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 just, and more than the, 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 the Jewish people who follow their leaders, he's like, you're really good at interpreting the weather patterns, and you know exactly what's going to happen with the weather, but the far more serious and, and, and important signs of God's story you missed. Well, what, are, okay, what does he mean when he says you don't understand the times? Okay, you understand the weather, but you don't understand the times. He's not saying you can't read the time, like you can't read a sundial or whatever the web, you know, timekeeping mechanisms wouldn't be. It wasn't like he was saying you don't understand that, this, you know, when the sun's in the east, it's morning, when it's in the west, it's afternoon. That's not what he's saying. He's saying basically what I said in our intro, which is that you're on the wrong side of history. You don't understand what God is doing in history right now, and, you, and you're missing that. Not time is in 937, but time is in the transcendent story that God is telling with humanity. Now, I've mentioned these before, but it's, it's good just to go over them because it's, it's, it's so important to understand the Bible. But the Bible, again, is a story, and you can divide it into kind of four chapters, you might think of, or, or four scenes, if you want to think of it as like a play. And so Jesus is referring to this overarching story. And the way the story goes is that God created everything. It's the first chapter, first scene, creation. He made it good and beautiful. He, he created a beautiful world where there was not suffering or pain. He designed it. He thought it. It was an outflow of his creative genius. And then the crowning achievement was the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of people who not only were made by God, but they were made in his image. But then quickly after creation, we get the fall where Adam and Eve disobey God's commands. And the consequences of that are, are drastic and widespread. And this is where we get disease and sickness and violence entering the human race. It's the age of sin or the age of the fall. Then the third chapter is, is, is redemption. When God once again comes to humanity who because of sin had been separated from God and he makes a way for us to be in relationship with God again through the person of Jesus Christ. It's the age of redemption, and finally the age of consummation, which is when God brings all things to, go to a conclusion in the return of his son, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is, you, you're missing where we are in this story. You still think that we're in the age of the fall, but with the coming of Jesus, it's now the age of redemption. You're missing the turning of, of, of this chapter. A way to think about it, you know, is, 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 is to compare it to how seasons go. So we live in, Kent in Kentucky. One of the great things about Kentucky is it has four legitimate seasons. And, and the, you know, the passing of the seasons is one of my favorite things. When I lived in Texas, there's two seasons. It's very hot and less hot. Um, and so I missed having legitimate four seasons. So right now we're in a transition between winter and summer. We call it spring. So that means you walk out, and some days it feels like summer. It's 80 degrees, the sun is out, it's beautiful, and then other days you wake up in April and there's snow on the ground, and you're like, what is wrong with this weather? It feels like winter. We're in a transition. But we see signs that we're not in winter anymore, but summer legitimately is approaching. What are those signs? Well, the trees are blooming, there's leaves, there is warm weather. You don't get 80-degree days in January unless something really bad's happening. There are signs that are happening. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Look, there are signs that we're moving from this age of the fall to the age of redemption where God is doing something new. And you're missing it, guys. What are these signs? Well, they were 
all the various healings that Jesus did in his ministry, the exorcisms, the resurrections, the miracles of like feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread or knowing where the fish are and, and how to, you know, I mean, like predicting the, the, the you know, where fish are going to be in a pond and all these various miracles and then also him teaching with the new authority. It's cut people to the heart. These were, the, the, Jesus wasn't just, you know, putting on a show. He was giving signs, like the signs of spring. There was a new age coming and so the religious leaders, they were like people who, it's, it's May, but they're in their house, and they're like, no, it's winter outside. And you're like, well, look at the blooms. And nope, nope, it's still January. I, I, I'm, I, don't believe, I don't think so. And so Jesus is rebuking them for that. More generally, though, we could say more generally, not just missing the time, but what the religious leaders missed was they missed what God was doing in the world at that time. They missed what God was doing. And this is why Jesus doesn't just correct them and say, guys, you don't understand the times. He calls them hypocrites. Because these are people who claim to be religious leaders, so they're, they're, they're experts supposedly in God and knowing God, knowing things about God, and yet they completely miss what God is actually doing around them. And so he calls them hypocrites. It's really, really, really easy, especially when you've been a Christian for a while, to fall into the trap of knowing a whole lot about God, we're not actually knowing God. We know a lot about him. We read a lot of theology textbooks. We, we've read the Bible. But we don't actually know him. We're not communing with him as if he's a person who can know us back. I, read, I listened to a sermon by John Stott. He was a clergy in England 50 years ago. He's kind of my homeboy, I think, um, although he never knew me. But he said in the sermon, he said, the most fundamental thing about Christianity is knowing Jesus. It's not, it's not a creed, like a system of belief. We certainly have creeds and beliefs, but the Bible tells us that demons have perfect theology, and yet they're not Christians. It's not religious ritual, although we believe that there are religious, religious rituals like attending church, gathering with God's people that are essential to being Christian, but that's not what is most fundamental about Christianity. What is most fundamental is actually knowing Jesus, speaking to him, and in a way analogous to how we know other people. Not the same way, but analogous to actually praying to Christ, loving him, obeying him, following after him, being in relationship with him. And so as a pastor, oh, I want us to know more about God, and I love reading books that teach me more about God, but even more, I want us to know God, to be in relationship with him, to speak with him, to obey him, to love him with all our hearts. That's far more important. And that's what the, that's what the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had missed. They knew a whole lot about God. I mean, you can see in history, I mean, this is the beginning of the Talmud, which became what became rabbinic Judaism, is, is being birthed in this age. You have the Mishnah, which is just pages of commentary on Scripture. I mean, to be a rabbi, this is kind of embarrassing to us pastors, to be a rabbi, you had to memorize the Old Testament. They made that a requirement for Southern. There would not be a whole lot of graduates. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. And so they missed it when God actually came to them in Jesus Christ. So are you walking more closely with God? Not just knowing more, but this year versus last year versus three years ago versus 10 years ago. Like, Do you know God more? Do you walk with him more closely? Do you love him more? Those are the questions we want to ask ourselves.
Now, the time that the, the religious leaders missed were the, the moving of, from the age of the fall to the age of redemption. Again, Jesus is like the spring between the winter and the summer, and he's saying, look, summer is coming, the age of redemption, when there will be a new way to know God once again. What are our times? Okay, we're, we're not the original audience, so how does this apply? What are our times? How can we miss our times? Well, if Jesus, again, sticking in this season analogy, if Jesus was the spring, we're in summer. Summer's here. The age of redemption is here. In fact, harvest is approaching. We're well into summer. And so what is our time marked by? Our time is marked by the advance of the kingdom of God. Heart by heart, as people turn to Jesus as Lord over all their life and trust in him for salvation and turn to him. Matthew 24, 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to all ethnicities, and then the end will come. That's our times. It's the proclamation of the kingdom. It's sharing the kingdom with our friends and our neighbors. How is God at work in our time? It's by advancing his kingdom. As we grab coffee with a friend and we talk to him about Jesus. As we see our neighbors, not just as the people who live next to us, but as people of God and his sovereign mystery placed next to us, that we may know them, or our co-workers, or our family members. I think sometimes it, we get discouraged because we wish that God worked in the ways we see in the Bible, where like, he parted the Red Seas in these obvious ways. But I think in reality, we're like, you know, the person sitting inside who's like, I, I don't I don't see God working. I don't see the signs. I don't see the signs. And Jesus is like, well, look out your window and see the blooms. See the signs that God is at work. I just don't think we're looking all the time. But if we could see how God is at work around us. So Jesus first, he rebukes the religious leaders for misunderstanding the times. They're living in a before Christ spirituality when now it is A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Christ is here. It's the age of redemption. The second point is responding to the times. Okay, so if, if, if the, uh, you know, understanding the times is understanding that we live in the age of redemption, well, what's the response to the times? Let's, let's look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that all these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus tells the religious leaders, you're misunderstanding the times. The time is the beginning of the age of redemption. How do we respond to that? Repentance. Now, I've been mentioning repentance a lot because it's featured in the section of the Gospel of Luke that we're in, the, the, the changing of our minds that that shows. If I thought differently before, but now I changed my mind. The turning from sin to Jesus. Why is repentance such a big theme in this section? Well, again, Luke is being written probably 40 years after Jesus' death. And by this point, the, 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 the Jewish nation had, had, by and large, completely rejected Christ. How did that happen? That's what Luke is trying to show. He's trying to show how the Jewish Messiah was rejected by his own people so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. 
who are all the non-Jewish people in the world. So Jesus is calling to a nation, again, who knows a whole lot about God, but doesn't actually know God, who's in a place of spiritual deadness and dryness and in compassion and love for them. He's calling them to repent and to open their eyes and to see the signs of the times before it's too late. Now, there are two theological truths we can pull out of this fact that the response to the times is repentance. The first theological truth is that the ground is level before the cross. It's flat. The ground is level before the cross. Now, in our story here in verses 1 to 5, there's an attempted debate by, by some Jews who come to Jesus, and they tell him about this event. We don't know much about it, but basically there were Galilean Jews who came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and then Pilate slaughtered them while they're, they're in the midst of sacrificing. We don't know why. It's not attested to in any other literature. But based on what we know from extra-biblical literature, this is like par for course in Palestine at this time. It's a place of great violence, corruption. This kind of thing would have happened. And so what seems to be the case is some people come to Jesus, and they're trying to get him to like engage in a theological debate. Like, Jesus, these guys were slaughtered. Was it because they were sinners? More so? There's kind of a common thought in Judaism that God, if you were good, would bless you, and if you were bad, he would curse you. I mean, this is what we see in Job's friends, right? When, when Job experiences great suffering and his friends are like, Job, God wouldn't have done this unless you were somehow really sinful. There's this direct, it was called the retributive principle. There's a direct correlation between how we act and then how God blesses us or doesn't bless us. And when the pandemic started, I mean, there were so many people who were wondering, is this God's judgment on America? Is this God's judgment on the world? It's interesting, though, is how Jesus answers. He doesn't get caught into this debate, but he pivots it to something far more essential. It says, verse 3. It says, you know, verse 2, you're thinking these Galileans got it because they're worse, because they did something really bad. That's why God allowed this judgment to fall on them. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's like, stop making levels of sinners as if there's like those really, you know, there's sinners who are like the church-going sinners. They're not so bad. But then you have the really bad sinners who like are going to get judgment. The cross is level. Sorry, the ground is level before the cross. There are no distinctions between little sinners and big sinners. We are all sinners. We've sinned against the holy God and we're, we're heading for destruction. Think of it this way. Um, I, I've flown first class a few times in my life. I've never actually paid for it. I've always been upgraded. So for instance, on my honeymoon, um, those who are engaged, take note. Tell everyone you're on your honeymoon and you'll get all kinds of free stuff. So I was upgraded for first class. And the thing about flying first class is it ruins you for economy. Because if you've been in an economy, like you know they like have a curtain that like, <laughs> it's like the royalty is in there and they cannot even be bothered by our presence here back, you know, among the peasants. Um, but once you get on the other side of the curtain and you realize like the seats are big and they're comfortable, and the legroom is so great, and there's like a server who is there at your beck and whim, and they have food, not like crackers, but like real food. It's so wonderful. So here's the thing. Imagine, you know, so again, like there's a clear distinction between first class and economy, and they put that little curtain to make sure everyone knows. You're not in first class. They paid a lot of money. You didn't. But if that plane starts going to a nosedive, and you hear the pilot over the intercom shouting, mayday, mayday, we're going down, and you see the ground rushing out to you, in that moment, no one in first class is thinking, boy, I'm really glad I have legroom right now. Glad I'm not in the back. Those differences are insignificant in the fact that we're all going down in a nosedive. 
That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, look, we, we create di- differentiations between ourselves and others to make ourselves feel better, but when, when the plane's going down, everyone's going down with it. It doesn't matter. These differences we draw between ourselves and others, the ground before the level, I'm sorry, the ground before the cross is level. There are no first-class VIP sections of those who come to Jesus. It's not like Billy Graham is in his own special section or Mother Teresa's own special section and then, right, the Sinners and the thieves and the prostitutes are in the back. The ground is level. This first hit home for me when I, in a profound way, when I graduated from college. One of the things I found is there are truths that, that I learned growing up. Like, I knew the gospel. I knew that I'm saved by grace through faith. My parents taught me that. But there are truths that at times, all of a sudden, we begin to understand different facets of that truth, different bits of it. And I moved to D.C., and if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's, um, it's a city of high achievers, very smart people, very hard workers, and I just, I felt so inferior. Uh, I felt I was just, I was out of my depths, and I was, just to be honest, in some ways. And so I, in my mind, I'd play this game of like, well, you know, you maybe have a more impressive resume than me, but I'm better at these things than you. And so I'd puff myself up to make myself feel better, and it's this really toxic combination. And I met with my pastor, and we went over this fact that, you know what, the most important fact about all of us is not our accomplishments, but that we're all on that plane that's going down. The ground before the cross is level. And before that, you have, you know, before the cross, on the same ground, you have congressmen and business executives and celebrity pastors, pastoring their mega churches, as well as teachers, drug addicts, and thieves. These differences that we draw between ourselves are meaningless compared to the far greater significance that we all desperately need salvation. That's the, first, that's the first theological truth that we draw out of this is that the ground is level before the cross. The second theological truth, though, is that since that ground is level, the hope is the same for everyone, which is God's mercy. And this is what we get in verses 6 to 9. So in verses 1 to 5 in chapter 13, Jesus points out, look, you will all perish unless you repent. And he pulls out, okay, so then what, if we're perishing, what's our hope? Verses 6 to 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years, now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. So cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So to explain this parable, it's pretty simple. There's a fig tree that's had three years to produce fruit, and the assumption is that it's gotten plenty of rain, plenty of fertilizer, like it should be producing fruit, and it's not. So the owner of the vineyard is like, okay, it's time for it to go. It's not only producing fruit, but it's taking up space of other plants that could be producing fruit. It's stealing nutrients from the surrounding plants. Like it's, it's a net negative. Like this is the right thing to do. Cut it down. Let's move on. But the vine dresser says, no, no, please, one more year. Just give me one more year. I'll give it special attention. I'll, I'll till around it. I'll give it fertilizer. Just one, who knows? Just give me one more year. And what is drawing out here is that yes, we are all <laughs> we are all moving towards destruction because of our sin against a God who is good and holy, absolutely true, and that's the, and, and what we deserve is judgment. But God, in His mercy, says, "Oh, but give them one more year." So who knows? They might turn. 
don't want to think as if God's having a debate among himself. That's not the point here. The point is to draw that God is like the vine dresser. This is, this is part of God's character. He's, he's one who shows mercy, who wants sinners to repent and turn to him. He doesn't stand up there when we come to him scolding, but he delights in us when we come to him in brokenness and in repentance. Even after long-term patterns of fruitlessness, Jesus will not give up on us. And so our hope is that God is, in fact, merciful when we approach the cross. Now, there's a caveat here, which is that I think we only will repent if we do believe that God is merciful, if we do believe that Jesus will accept us. It's the only way we'll repent. Because repentance is a step of faith. Repentance is turning away from sin and is turning to Christ alone. And that takes a, that's a risk involved in that. My kids are taking swimming lessons right now. <clears throat> and so if you have kids who've had swimming lessons, or if you had swimming lessons when you were a kid, you'll recognize, like, when a kid's five, he clings to the side of the pool like it's his life, which makes sense. Our bodies don't want to drown, and so we naturally cling to the side of the pool for dear life. But part of swimming is learning to actually trust the buoyancy of our bodies and letting go of the side of the pool. And so oftentimes in, in those first swim lessons, the swim instructor, instructor will kind of stand back from the side of the pool and say, okay, you have to let go and push off and come towards me. You have to push off from the side. And they'll stand back far enough that the kid can't like hold on with one hand and like reach out. Like, no, they really have to push off and trust that the water will hold them and more so that the instructor will catch them. That's, I think that's a really apt analogy for repentance. Sin is really comfortable. It's very comforting. It can numb our pain. It gives us a sense of, of, of self-control. It can give us a sense of worth. We control our lives. We are the masters of our destiny. And to repent means I'm turning my back on all of that. It's not a, I'm going to hold on with one hand, I'm going to reach towards Christ with the other. It's, I'm, I'm letting go. I'm jumping out. And I'm sure hoping that Jesus is going to catch me. And what Jesus is telling us See the heart of God, that he will. He delights when sinners come to him in repentance. And he forgives us at the cost of himself. You know, Jesus knows the extent and the details of our sin, of how we fall short, of how we fail. He knows it far more accurately than even we do. And yet he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the heart of our Lord. I want to take a step back here and, and, and again talk about who this was originally written to, which would have been the, the Jewish leaders, but more broadly the nation of Israel. Again, the nation of Israel at this time was characterized by knowing much of God. They had a whole lot of knowledge about God, but they did not know God. And so when God showed up in Jesus Christ, they missed it. They missed what God was doing. And so Jesus is calling the nation of Israel in this section, understand the Messiah has come. You can know God. It's not based on what you do, but it's based on trusting what God has done for you. And we find out as we read through Luke and then Acts, which is written by the same person, is that by and large, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus' warning and offering of forgiveness. That's what happened to the original recipients. Okay, but what about us? Does this still speak to us? Because Jesus was speaking to the nation of Israel. Like, does this speak to us? Well, yes, it does. 
first. Like, are you still clinging to the side of that pool, holding on to whatever it is that gives you a sense of control, whatever it is you don't want to give up? We'll never learn to swim that way, and you'll never know what real life is that way. But you have to push off and trust that Christ will accept you, not on what you've done, but because he's gracious and his death is enough to cover all our sin. But you know, repentance isn't a one-time thing. Justification, to use a big theology word, the moment when we come to Jesus in faith and God looks at us and says, because of what Jesus has done, you are now righteous in my sight, that's a one-time event. Yes, but repentance is not. I've shared this quote before, but it's so great. Martin Luther, he was, uh, I mean, he was, he was the spark that started the Protestant Reformation, and he did that by nailing 95 theses, these are arguments to the, 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 the door of the Church of Wittenberg. Um, and the primary, you know, kind of explosive arguments he was putting forth were against uh, the sale of indulgences. Anyways, interesting historical fact. But the first thesis, he started with this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not a one-time thing. I repent, I turn to Christ, and then I'm just good. Now I get, now I get to the big stuff in life. Because here's the thing, right? So when we, when we first turn to Jesus— and we say no to our sin, and we, and we push off from the side of the pool, and we, and we lunge out towards Jesus, and he catches us, and we experience forgiveness and the newness of life that God wants for us. It's like a blissful weeks, months. We're just delighting in the fact that we are beloved, not because of what we've done, but because God is gracious to us. But after a while, the inclination in the human heart is to go back towards the side of the pool, because that's where it's safe. And it may not be going back towards specific sins that we gave up. It may be going towards self-dependence, kind of a self-approval, like, okay, I, I read my Bible every day. I go to church. I do these things. And so now what I'm trusting in is not just Jesus alone to accept me based on his grace, but I'm trusting implicitly, subtly in all the things I'm doing. That's the inclination of our hearts. And Martin Luther was not an academic as much as a pastor, and he understood that. And that's what he said, this kind of repentance of again and again, pushing away from the wall, of the side of the pool, and trusting in Jesus alone is something we do on a daily basis. Because everything in our heart wants to trust in anything else to bring us close to God, except for Jesus. So again and again as Christians, we push off from the wall and we acknowledge, I have no right to approach God, except Jesus has died for me. And it's covered all my sin, and he's made me new. And I'm a new person, and I rest in that freedom. Israel missed the times. They failed to see what God was doing. They failed to see that the time of the fall was transitioning to the time of redemption, that God was making a way for us to know God. And the response to what God was doing back then, and the response to what God is doing now in advancing his kingdom remains repentance turning away from whatever we place our trust in and placing it alone in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we will all throw ourselves upon you in faith. Pray that we will not lean upon anything we have done, any good behavior, God, anything good in us is just by your grace. We trust fully in you. And we walk in the freedom that brings, 
of knowing that our love, that your love of us is not dependent on our discipline, it's not dependent on our good deeds, it's not dependent on anything we might do, but it's only dependent on the fact that you came and died in our place 2,000 years ago. Help us to live by faith in that. Help us to put to death every inclination, every tendency that wants to find trust in our strength or in anything outside of Jesus. May you do that by your Spirit's power. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.